Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How's it going? It's going well. I'm looking forward to talking about toxic charity. It sounds so intense today. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it won't be too intense. No, I think it's going to be really good. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind our listeners that our final episode of 2018 will be a listener request episode. And we've been getting some great questions from you all, and we want you to keep sending them. Um, so anything yeah. you want us to answer or just something you'd like for us to address on that last episode, we would love to hear from you. You can drop us a quick line at team at kindredspodcast.com, and we will answer that. We'll be recording that the first week of December. So get your questions in before then. Yeah. So last episode, we talked about money. And we focused mostly on like the personal, our personal perspectives on money, um, our household finances, maybe our personal emotional experiences with money. And it got us thinking, we didn't have time to cover this last time, but it got us thinking about big picture questions around money and the church. So last time we talked about how we spend our money, but now we're wondering how does the church spend its money? So where does our money go when we tithe? And um, we know it pays the church bills, it keeps the lights on, but a lot of our um, tithing dollars go to local charities, national charities, international ministries and missions. And so it got us thinking, like, do we know what missions and ministries our church supports? And is that something we should care about before we tithe? So it got me thinking. I um, was doing a little research this week, and I was wondering, like, how much money do people give to their churches? And I found this really interesting study that was done out of Georgetown University in 2015, and we'll link to it in the show notes because it's really fascinating. Um, But the study analyzes how much money, basically, uh, religious-based organizations have in the United States. And so um, this study showed that religious congregations, and this is just through, like, tithing and donations made to religious congregations, they take in $83 billion in revenue every year in the United States. That's a lot. That (laughs) blew my mind. And that doesn't take into account the revenues that are generated by religious, um, religiously affiliated organizations like religious schools, religious hospitals, charities in general. So if you take all of those into account and factor that in religious organizations, get ready for this, generate $387 billion in revenues every year, which is more than Apple and Microsoft combined. Wow. I, yeah, I can't believe it. Wow. I can and I can't at the same time. And we have to remember that these are tax exempt organizations. So the revenue being brought in by Apple and Microsoft is being taxed. And yes. going back into the the money cycle, but um, yeah, but we're not getting a cut of that with our with in our federal spending from all those. That is a really good point. Yeah, and they don't have to follow the same laws that mm-hmm. other employers do, which we'll I'm sure we'll get into. But to go back just for yeah. a second for some context um, to tie it back to the federal government. So when we think about welfare programs that we spend from our tax dollars. That is about $212 billion every year. So you quoted $387 billion from these 
organizations that are religiously affiliated or churches. Mm -hmm. So the federal government, everyone paying in as a taxpayer, we're only spending $212 billion on those social welfare programs like temporary assistance for needy families and food stamps and housing vouchers and stuff like that. So we have the potential to really transform our society with those dollars and to alleviate suffering in major ways. Um, but we also know that the reality is is not quite that beautiful, right? Like it doesn't quite end up looking like that. And so I wanted to ask you, because yeah. um, these uh, religious organizations touch so many things, we wanted to look specifically at some particular areas. So I wanted to start with a brief conversation about healthcare and religion mm-hmm. and what it looks like mm-hmm. for the church to get involved with the healthcare field. Yeah. So it's interesting because when I think about faith-based healthcare, I kind of think about it in two different ways. There's the religious services and proselytizing that's kind of disguised as healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about that, I think about like crisis pregnancy centers. Ugh. And then there's religiously operated and affiliated real healthcare centers, like a Catholic or a Baptist hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back to like crisis pregnancy centers. So those are often, you know, for our listeners that may not be familiar, um, those are often places that advertise themselves as women's health clinics. And they advertise things like free pregnancy testing and um, free ultrasounds, free ultrasounds. But uh, what happens is women may or may not know that when they walk in, uh, a pregnant woman might walk in, um, she's actually going to get the hard sell on avoiding abortion at all costs. She's going to be um, proselytized to, in a lot of instances, shamed about being pregnant. Mm -hmm. And they they make a lot of promises about, we'll help you with diapers and we'll help you with um, taking care of the baby. But um, if, if an if a woman goes in with an unplanned pregnancy thinking that she's going to get a pregnancy test and then a list of her options of what she can do, that is absolutely not the case. And they they advertise themselves that way on purpose. They right. are purposely misleading. Yeah. And we've seen um, states like California just tried to pass a law saying that um, crisis pregnancy centers have to put a sign in their in their somewhere on the property that says we do not perform abortions and they they fought it and said we don't want to put that sign up that sign is uh infringing on our religious beliefs and i believe they won isn't that i think that was recent i think you're right saying that they don't have to put a sign up that says we don't offer abortions right and even though they don't but they don't want people to know that because they want women to come in um you know unsuspectingly so that they can give them their um particular uh brand of religious beliefs and, you know, impose their beliefs on them. And that, that kind of thing, you know, our, I think it's important to make sure that money that we give to our denomination is not going to support, um, a crisis pregnancy center or any kind of service that is like a service, but it's disguised, you know, and really it's just evangelizing. Right. And I know in North Carolina, they get state money, um, from mm, all yep. the choose life license plates. So, you yep. know, maybe your church gives, but if your tax dollars are going to these organizations that are deceptive and misleading to women, like that's really troubling. Really, yeah. really troubling. And it's tough in Mississippi. They are proliferating at a very quick pace. Like we have more crisis pregnancy centers per capita. Like it's, it's really incredible um, how many of those that uh, – 
come up in internet searches and when you're looking for like just an OBGYN and things like that. Like, yeah. It's, it's really crazy. And they call themselves um, things that sound like you could go mm-hmm. and get full range of options there. Mm-hmm. The one here where I live is called the Women's Health Center. Uh, and so you just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I you can't believe they're allowed to call themselves a health center when they're not yeah. providing actual medical care. Ugh, yeah. That's really frustrating. Yeah, it, it it's. It's troubling. Um, and then there's like actual healthcare facilities that are that just happen to be religiously affiliated. And those generally do provide a lot of important like hospital and healthcare services. But there's some things that you might want to consider um, when it comes to like a Catholic hospital, for example. Um, a Catholic hospital is going to have strong um, religious beliefs around um, – pregnancy. And so even women who are like actively miscarrying um, and potentially need to have that pregnancy terminated um, for their, because their health is at risk, might be denied that service. Um, so those are things to, to really consider. Um, there's other things that religious hospitals sometimes won't do, like they won't uh, do a gender affirmation uh, surgery for a trans person. They might put restrictions on fertility treatments. Um, they You might not be able to get contraception at a um, at a Catholic run, um, hospital pharmacy. So those are all things to really think about, um, when religion is kind of getting into the social services arena. Yeah. When dogma is what's dictating the care that you get rather than what you actually need in the moment, even if like you Mm -hmm. said, your life is in danger, that's Mm -hmm. really terrifying. And what's even more terrifying in this moment when hospitals are merging into these huge conglomerates mm-hmm. is that Catholic hospitals can sometimes be the only hospital in the area. So you mm-hmm. might not have a choice if it's an emergency situation. Like you don't, where are you going to go to get your health care? It's, it's really yeah. terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's kind of happening behind the scenes. Like this should be sort of a national conversation, but we're not really having it um, about who should be allowed to run um, healthcare, especially if it's the only healthcare access in an area, should a person or, or a denomination's religion trump people's need for a- access to care? Gosh, I feel like anyone with basic ethics would be able to answer that question, but I know it's a lot more complicated than that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so we could talk about this for a long time, but I want to yeah. shift gears a little bit because I know that you have some personal experience with what it looks like for the church or faith-based organizations to get involved with disaster relief because you were impacted um, personally by Hurricane Katrina. And I would love for you to share a little bit about what it was like to be maybe on the receiving end of this Mm -hmm. and what you learned. So yeah, Hurricane Katrina hit here over 10 years ago and it uh, really devastated my hometown of Long Beach, Mississippi. And it was Really interesting being on the receiving end of uh, disaster response and relief aid, and it's been um, it's been really emotional uh, watching the recovery process, which a lot of people don't know takes like over a decade, and um, watching all these hurricanes as they hit other parts of the country just is always bringing this back up for me, and it really makes me focus on the ways that mm. our um, response to um, to these disasters, um, and even the disasters like wildfires too out in, um, California, like the way we respond to those things really needs to be responsive. And so I'll share a little story when I, um, 
lost my job after uh, in Tennessee, and after I moved home, I started working for a um, United Methodist Katrina response um, organization, and we hosted volunteers who were still coming from all over the country to help rebuild homes. And um, they rebuilt the houses for folks who didn't have insurance uh, at the time, or maybe their insurance didn't cover uh, the damage that was done. And eventually what became clear is that the hurricane was a disaster for everybody, no question. But the people with money and insurance were able to get through it uh, quickly. But people who mm. were poor before the hurricane were still poor. And people who needed help repairing their homes from other issues had no resources. So um, when I started working for this organization, it was about eight years post-Katrina, and we were starting to see the end of the actual storm damage. Um, but the So the need for the storm rebuilding was dwindling, but there was still a lot of donated money left, and volunteers were still coming. So there was a push within our program to turn to poverty home repair assistance, but ultimately, the church conference decided that because Katrina rebuilding was over, the remaining money should be transferred back to the church for future disasters. And it was really, it was really hard because it felt like the church was happy to fund Katrina recovery because it was sexy and because, um, you know, yeah. they, they could get a lot of attention and it was newsworthy. Um, but when it came to just providing everyday services for the poor people that were poor before the storm, poor after the storm, still needed help, it's like they were done. So they just ended the program. Mm -hmm. We closed the doors. We sold all of the all of the assets and everybody, you know, we, we all lost our jobs. So um, it really got me thinking about the when we respond to folks in a disaster situation as a church, but as also as individuals, we really need to avoid we really need to think about what we're doing. So we need to make sure that we're being responsive to the needs on the ground, um, that we're not donating unnecessary stuff, that we're donating money if that's what ne it's needed, and that we're bringing skilled labor to an area. Um, and we need to remember mm -hmm. that these um, disasters take a really long time to recover from. So donating in the moment is great, but continue those donations for the long term. Um, because I've, like I said, it took 10 years here and in some areas it's still recovering. Um, and then ignoring those systemic issues that contribute to or exacerbate the human suffering in the aftermath of, of a disaster. Things like poverty and racism and inequities in insurance coverage or ability to evacuate, thinking about those things as well. What can we do to alleviate that? And then just thinking that our good intentions about donating are more important than the impact of our donation. <laughs> like we really need to, we really need to make sure that we're, we're answering the needs of people and not just making ourselves feel good. Oh, yeah. You had on such a, I mean, lots of important points, but I think the part about when when the rebuilding was done mm -hmm. and there were still resources left over rather than contributing to creating a sustainable yes. economic climate for everybody, they, they took the money away, which yep. it just made me think about how charity without a lens and a trajectory towards sustainable mm -hmm. social justice change is toxic. Yep. Like charity without justice is toxic yep. um, because it's not about actually making sure that the need goes away, that people are able to sustain their lives, yeah. you know, beyond like you coming in and helping them. Um, it's so true. So I just, yeah, it's like the charity, like in a way is toxic if, if it's not about transforming 
communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so partnering with them. if people are interested in um, in ways to be uh, responsible, to donate responsibly in the aftermath of a disaster, we'll share. Um, there's a great Psychology Today article that we'll put in the show notes. Right. If you're going to give, make sure you're giving in a way that's going to actually help people mm-hmm. on the ground in the ways that they need help, not in the ways that you want to give help. I see this so much. I mean, just some smaller examples, because I have not lived through what you were describing with Katrina, but I've in my work, I have seen this dynamic play out. And some of it is about people just want to give away stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. um, rather than giving their money. So um, I think toxic charity can take the form of of stuff. And I saw this really early on. And actually, I wrote about this in my book, um, Women Rise Up, which I've now turned in and should be out next year. Yay! Uh, Yay, a little plug. But so I was working on this maternal health project, which is really about sustainable change, like making sure every woman had access to long-term contraceptives or reliable Mm -hmm. contraceptives so they could plan and space their pregnancies. But when we would talk about women dying in childbirth, um, there was a speaker early on who mentioned this healthy birthing kit, which is a really great tool when used well. It can reduce infection for women who are giving birth, you know, in the dirt by making sure they're on like a clean place up piece of plastic and making sure you have a clean razor blade to cut the umbilical cord, like very tactile, simple stuff that a lot of women don't have access to. And I should have known that people were just going to latch onto that idea Mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, our, our, we want a um, service project for our little like meeting. So we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll create birthing kits and everyone, it was almost like they hadn't heard anything else I said. Because as, mm-hmm. as soon as the idea of making a birthing kit was introduced, because that was an easy, tactile thing that can, oh, if I put this together, I'm going to help save a woman's life. Like, it's a very sexy thing, like you were talking about. So all of these groups started making these birthing kits. And eventually, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I got a call from our uh, relief center saying, like, please tell people to quit making these things. Like, we don't have enough <clears throat> ways to distribute them or to teach people how to use them like we're just getting a backlog and people weren't making the other kits that they needed because everyone was making the birthing kits had you asked for birthing kits or did you just mention birthing kits like i didn't even mention them i had brought in someone as a speaker as like an expert who who created them or helped create them in the church and it kind of caught on like wildfire. Um, so and so it just became like crazy. the thing. So a yeah. lot of times what would happen is I would come in and speak about the advocacy piece. And then they would pair it up with this um, creating mm. of birthing kits. And then people were calling me about the birthing kits and what needed to go in there. And I'm like, I don't oh. run that. That's not my thing. So uh, I really saw that play out. And it was really frustrating for me because – you know, the part of moving policymakers to make different mm-hmm. decisions about how foreign assistance, that's not sexy. A birthing mm-hmm. kit is sexy. And easy. And and yeah, and, and pretty pretty easy, right? Like yeah. it's pretty easy to get together and do that. But not thinking about how is this going to get distributed? How is it going to be used properly? How do you mm-hmm. educate folks on the ground? Do you ask folks on the ground? Do you ask midwives, do you need these? Like yep. how would you use them in your work? So lots and lots of assumptions being made um, along the way. And similarly, I was thinking about this summer I worked at a center for folks experiencing homelessness. And one day my boss pulled me in because someone had brought in like 50 jars of laxative powder. I don't know why they had them. That is wild. And my boss was just like, what am I going to do with this? Put it in the soup? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, just that whole assumption of people who have fewer resources are just our dumping ground. 
yeah. for whatever unused objects we have that may or may not be useful or value. It's really dehumanizing yeah. uh, when you think about it. And um, one other example I thought of was was volunteering at this food pantry and talking with the director because people just like dump their stuff off at food pantries mm-hmm. too. And I remember the director saying, you know, after Thanksgiving, we get all the unused pumpkin cans and um, and stuff that's expired. Like people just clean out their pantries and dump off yeah. whatever they're, they're not using. And so one little helpful tip that I heard from her, I don't know if other food pantries would say this, but if you do want to donate stuff instead of um, money, which you should always donate money first. But mm-hmm. she said, what we really love is is having peanut butter because it's it's something mm-hmm. that everyone eats. It's got protein. You can put it on almost everything and kids will eat it. So if that's mm-hmm. something that you want. If you want to give away stuff to a food pantry, you might ask them if peanut butter would be a good thing to yep. donate. And it's shelf stable, like right. once, even once it's open. Yeah. 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 I totally agree about the food pantries. I saw the same thing. I used to um, work with one in Nashville and that's where I learned that um, the way that we donate food can be really problematic because food pantries, they can stretch money so much better. Like we, we buy food retail prices, but right. food pantries can take a hundred dollars and buy so much more with it than we right. can buy off the shelf exactly. and they can buy exactly what they need and it can be consistent across all of their, cause this particular food pantry I worked with in Nashville had several, um, f- uh, uh, food box locations and things like that. And then like soup kitchens, are actually the places that cook on site, they need their food in like big number 10 cans. They don't need small cans. Yeah, they got to open 50 of them. (laughs) Exactly. And so, yeah, like my um, my husband's work last year did a um, Christmas food drive. And I made him, when I found out they were doing it, I made him call up the pantry that they were donating to and ask them what they needed. Because I was like, please, have you called and asked and told them you're doing a food drive and ask them what they need? Because maybe what they need is money. But they... But this, a lot of companies or churches do it like this. They have a competition of who can raise the most pounds of food. And so if your office gets together and comes up with $100, you're going to lose the competition. Or you're considered that you're not doing it in the spirit of of the organization, you know, not participating right. And so we really need to rethink the way that we structure some of our, like, it's not about you. How service. about that? <laughs> yes, exactly. Our service projects, we just need to make sure that they're actually serving people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not just for your fun or enjoyment. Like, these are real people who need actual food. Exactly. And it's dehumanizing to just make it about – I mean, I, I get it in a way, but it's so detached from the reality mm-hmm. of the need. Yeah, like donating cranberry, your unused pumpkin and cranberry sauce after Thanksgiving. And Nobody like wants that. to eat that. You didn't want to eat it. It's why it's <laughs> left over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then a lot of food pantries, you know, they get this influx of giving around the holidays, but they stay open all year long. And that's, that's something right. that is really um, troubling is that we have this impulse, especially Christians, you know, we have this impulse to give and give around the holidays, but that giving isn't necessarily sustained over the rest of the year. And, um, um, something that, you know, in thinking about holiday giving, um, something that I participated in once upon a time and then learned um, was was really problematic was Operation Christmas Child. Have you heard of them that do the shoe boxes? I have heard about them, but I have not 
ever put one together, but I've I've heard that they're not good. <laughs> so tell yeah. us more. <laughs> well, so I was in college and just a friend in class one day was like, hey, I'm doing shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. Do you want to do one? And I'd never heard of it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I like went and picked out a box and um, you like decide if you're going to do a boy box or a girl box, which should have been my first clue. <laughs> and you pick an age range. And then you um, buy things to go in that box. And I remember like really having a having a good time, like picking out things for my, you know, the child that I could envision sending this box to. And then you just donate it to they. So what I didn't know is that the box doesn't get sent as is. It gets um, once you like turn it into their like uh, processing centers that all the boxes go to their processing centers and they pick out. Anything that is uh, unreligious, um, like Harry Potter. I found out that they take out anything Harry Potter themed. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Those aren't the – that's not the problems with it, though. The real problem is the um, the overarching organization that sponsors Operation Christmas Child is Samaritan's Purse, which is run by Franklin Graham. Who Yes, and we'll talk more about him in a minute. We will. We will. So um, I – in – in researching for this episode, I found a great article on the Good Men Project, Seven Reasons Not to Participate in Operation Christmas Child. It really digs into like the the um the problems with the type of evangelizing that these boxes do and the um really toxic messaging that Samaritan's Purse participates in and Franklin Graham perpetuates and um the 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 like kind of Americanized consumerist, like giving toys to kids that really don't need toys. They need clean water. Like, let's be real. Right. And yeah. And so, um, it's really, it, it, I'm, I'm sorry that I participated in it when I did, but I definitely am glad to have that experience because I'm a lot more, um, discerning now about mm-hmm. what types of charities I donate to. Mm-hmm. So what do you do now instead? Do you have alternatives um, for our folks? I yes, I do. So a good alternative if you just like to shop at Christmas and you just want to have that like somebody to buy for, you could pick an angel off of an angel tree. Um a lot of churches do those. Um and a lot of like I see them in grocery stores too, where you can pick mm-hmm. um an angel and sponsor a family um that way. And you know it stays in your community then. And you can also donate through like Oxfam or Heifer International, where you can, if you want to send something to someone overseas, it can you can buy like a goat or um other livestock that can actually go to like helping a family's economic stability. So those are some um like Christmassy or holiday type uh donations you can do. But that kind of makes me think about overseas in general. So Katie, um Speaking of overseas, what are your thoughts on overseas missions? Oh, they're super problematic um, <laughs> in general. So I, I did one when I turned 16. And so the interesting thing about this is we we went to Costa Rica and we're, we're rehabbing a building that was about to be sold. And it turns out, I found out later when I was in seminary, um, that it was actually a women's seminary in Costa Rica Whoa. that was selling the building. And so it was actually a very feminist liberation environment. But Whoa. We, didn't, we didn't know that. No one told <laughs> us that. So I found out later from Letty Russell, who's now passed away, who was this, you know, kind of trailblazing second wave feminist in the Presbyterian church about this church. And because none of us spoke Spanish, we mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on. But I've always felt like, well, there was like some spirit guiding us to participate in this feminist uh, theology project. We didn't yeah. know. 
<laughs> because I can assure you my United Methodist Church in Southeast Georgia was not interested in that. But um, so funny. <laughs> so so I will say that that one went, went better than others. But still, I think the attitude was like, we're coming in and like, we're going to help these like poor folks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my first semester of college, I applied to go on a reverse mission trip to Nicaragua. So reverse mission, which I found out later, is really about going and seeing for yourself kind of what systemic injustice looks like and then coming back and sharing that story with oh, with privileged folks. So that's, that's interesting. Training. Right. So it's like go and observe and see and witness, be a presence, and then you do the transformation work when you get home. Well, I didn't really know about that. And so um, I applied and got into an interview and the the chaplain of our college asked something along the lines of, this trip will cost thousands of dollars for you to fly to Nicaragua. And, you know, some folks would say, why wouldn't you just give the money to the people there? How would you respond to that? And I legit said, (laughs) well, if at the end of it, they know about Jesus, you know, like it's, if they know about the gospel, then it was worth it. I mean, it was completely the white savior complex that I had gotten from church. And like, I thought I had it all figured out. Like it was all about making sure everybody knew the, knew the good news yeah. Uh, of the gospel, because um, that's what my church told me. So wisely, they did not choose me for that trip. <laughs> it would have been a disaster. <laughs> but the whole um, uh, the whole concept of voluntourism, of yeah. going somewhere and like doing a quote unquote mission trip and then doing something fun and touristy is like a very popular thing among young people, especially mm-hmm. among y- young white evangelical folks. And I came across this really good piece by a woman named Pippa Biddle, who wrote uh, an article called The Problem with Little White Girls, Boys, and Voluntourism. And she talked about going to Tanzania as a school trip, and it cost $3,000 to get there. They were going to work at an orphanage and then go on a safari at the end. Mm -hmm. So um, their job was to build a library and... They didn't have the skills to do that. And so she talks about, you know, all day they would try to make this structure. It's just so absurd. And then um, at night, men would come and undo it and redo it properly um, Mm. while they were asleep. So they were just there, like, I mean, basically being babysat by members of the community. Uh, And she said, basically, we failed at the sole purpose of our being there. It would have been more cost effective uh, stimulative of the local economy and efficient for the originate orphanage to take our money and hire locals to do the work. Mm-hmm. But there we were trying to build straight walls without a level. <laughs> yeah, mean, it, that that's just classic right there. That's it really is classic. And I and I own up to the fact that I have been part of that. And I think there's this whole idea of white folks from the U.S. Even if we aren't skilled, like bring so much to the table. And can accomplish yeah. so much just because of who we are and because we've been called by God to do this great work and not yeah. ever thinking about the assets and resources and knowledge of the folks who live there, who are yeah. very aware of their own problems. And yeah. we just make assumptions about what they need and then go do it. Have you ever read um, Jamie, the Very Worst Missionary, her blog? Yes. I haven't yes. read her book. Have you? No, I haven't. Her blog is so good. I highly recommend it. She talks about this very thing. Um, she and her husband and and children went to Costa Rica and stayed for five years, and they were um, going. They were missionaries, and she um, she came back with a lot of wisdom about just what 
white Western folks are doing wrong when we go into um, developing countries and, um, you know, steamroll the locals or take up their resources in trying to help them. Or um, we, you know, we want to send our kids over there to teach them a lesson about what it's really like to be poor. Like how gross, you know, like we want to mm-hmm. expose our privileged children to, to real poverty. And so we're fine with using human beings as props for lessons for our kids, like things like that. And she takes, she really like takes a, a critical eye to a lot of these, um, the, the, the problems inherent in mission work, especially short-term mission work, like we were just talking about. And she has this one great podcast that, I mean, um, blog post that we'll link to. And she talks about how going on vacation is better for that area. Like go on an actual spend vacation, your <laughs> spend your money in the hotels, tip all of your service people, um, that all of that contributes to that country's gross domestic product. It creates demand for jobs. Those jobs in turn support families. It stabilizes the local economy. Like go and be a tourist. You don't right. have to build anything. <laughs> like right. It's probably better if you don't. Anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So um, I just think that that's really uh, that that's really important advice that we need to really think about. Um, so great. what I'm curious to know, what do you what resources do you use when you when you want to vet a charity or like what tips do you have for people who want to donate their time and money, um, you know, especially thinking about how the holidays are coming up? Yeah, I have a few. And this is when the Internet can just be a great resource. Yes. So a couple of websites that I like to use to look up charities I don't know or maybe do know and make assumptions about are Charity Navigator and GuideStar. They rank every registered 501c3, Mm -hmm. that's a nonprofit organization that's registered here in the U.S. So you can look at previous year's 990 tax forms. You're going to see what their assets are, um, their operational budget. They'll also list the top two paid professionals in that Mm -hmm. organization. So because you were talking about Operation Christmas Child, I looked up Samaritan's Purse, uh, which oh. you mentioned with Franklin Graham. And in 2016, he was compensated $603,000 for salary and an additional $110,000 in other compensation. So That's we're talking about disgusting. a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just having this conversation today with colleagues actually about um, compensation for executives. And I don't have any problem mm-hmm. with executives getting compensated well. Yeah. Um, as long as, you know, their their mission is one that I can get behind and yeah. that all of the members of their staff are paid fairly and are paid a living wage and have access to everything yeah. that they need. So that's maybe another topic for another episode. But in any case, you can look up any nonprofit. They're all have a rating. Mm-hmm. Based on these things, so you could just take a look and say, hey, is that something I want to yeah. support or not? Um, in addition to that, I think some other things, and this goes along with what you're saying about the angel tree, is really stay local with your yep. donations. Um, give to those small organizations that are understaffed and doing great work in the community. Your money is going to go a lot further there than it will somewhere yep. else. And um, build relationships with the people there. You know, Get to know their staff. Get to know volunteer mm-hmm. there. Get to know what they do. And give consistently if you can. Like you were saying, don't just give it at the end of the year, but yeah. give 10 bucks a month so that they know they've got that money coming and they can plan so much better. So that's yep. one. Um, one thing I've started to do after uh, natural disasters, because we've had a couple of hurricanes here in North Carolina this year, is follow the local organizers who mm-hmm. are doing the work. So mm-hmm. you don't want to give to Red Cross. Um 
you will often see if you follow the hashtag for that hurricane, like these are the folks doing the work on the ground and they might not have an official website. They might not have all the fancy schmancy stuff that we're used to, but those are the people who are actually doing the work. Um, And you can Venmo them or PayPal them a little bit of money to to help them do that recovery work. Uh, And also resist the urge to give stuff if you can, unless it's requested and needed. And when you do give stuff, I really encourage you to give the unsexy stuff away. So the adult diapers, underwear, socks, tampons, pads, condoms, like the stuff that people don't want to just like go buy for themselves anyway at the store, like just suck it up and go buy that stuff and donate it because that's the stuff that they really need. They yeah. probably don't need any more toothbrushes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of that is really great advice and we could probably talk about this a lot more, but we should probably switch over to what we're reading and listening to. Yeah. So what have you been reading and listening to lately? Oh, I'm so excited. Have you been listening to the season three of Serial? Yes, I have, I'm caught up. Yep. Oh, me too. It is it's so, so good. good. <laughs> so I skipped season two because it was boring. Yeah, season, I listened to you. Yes. All of it. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> season one, I really liked, um, but I love what they're doing with season three. So if you have not heard, um, they're basically, instead of following like season one and two, they followed one particular case through the whole season. But for season three, what they've done is they actually like spent a year in um, Cleveland municipal court system just following all the cases, all the attorneys, all the judges. Um, one of the reporters even moved to Cleveland for the year. Um, and they got they got unprecedented access to like the inner workings of a, of a like mid-city municipal court. Mm-hmm. And basically um, they just illuminate the uh, sort of everyday grind of the um, justice system from the perspective of small cases, petty things, misdemeanors, um, all the way to felony murder. And they they look at how different judges apply the laws differently, um, how different uh, attorneys build relationships with each other to negotiate their uh, deals for their clients. And I mean, it's just and, – and it also takes a look at um, – the actions of police and police violence and um, crime in the city, how poverty relates to that, how race relates to that. They're really doing some great work. So I I got really interested because I was like, "Mm, this is not making Cleveland look so good. I wonder how they feel about this. So I Googled like, how does Cleveland feel about season three of Serial? Yeah. Oh, I'm curious. (laughs) Yeah. So I found this awesome blog called SerialLand.com and it's being written and researched by an attorney who lives and works in Cleveland. Her name is Rebecca Marr. And she's giving like this broad context for every episode. So after every episode, you can go onto her blog and read her thoughts. And she kind of puts it into a bigger context of other things that are going on in Cleveland that you might not know about or some history of Cleveland that you might not know about. Mm. And she also is doing this cool thing. At the end of each blog post, she's highlighting something good about Cleveland. To kind nice. of like, yeah, to, to, and the, I was kind of hoping it wouldn't be like Cleveland apology. Like, like here, let me explain why what is happening is okay. It's none of that. It's a lot of the time she agrees with the perspective taken by the um, podcast, but she's just saying, here are some things that we're doing. Here are some things that have happened since um, the reporters were here and things like that. So it's just been really um, kind of giving some more context and 
painting another picture um, in conjunction with the podcast. So I highly recommend season three of Serial and the Serial Land blog. Do you know if Sarah Koenig or the team at Serial is aware of or responding to the blog? They, I think they're aware of the blog. I don't believe they're responding to it, but I think there's a lot of folks. I, I want to say that I read an article where she just said, where Sarah Koenig just said something like, we're really glad people are engaging with the show. Um, you know, keep, keep the conversation going, that kind of thing. But um, I'd be really curious to find out what, uh, if they've been in touch with each other, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. my sense of, of Sarah Koenig and their team is that they're probably grateful for mm-hmm. additional context and stuff. They don't strike me as like, we're pushing a very specific point no. of view. I mean, they have a point of view, obviously, mm-hmm. but they're trying to do something so massive in these mm-hmm. short episodes that there's no way they can include all of that. And I feel like she does a good job of saying, look, this is, this is how it is everywhere. We're, we're in yeah. Cleveland because they will allow us to come in and record everything. Yeah. So what are you reading? Well, I should say my my book reading has really slowed down. I started out the year really strong, but I don't know. I've just been getting into bed and falling asleep. So good for uh, you. <laughs> Self care. I, I fall asleep with the Kindle in my hand. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to lift up a piece because we were talking about toxic charity. Um, I had heard about this woman Kamal Ahmad. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. But there is a a piece about her in the Experience Life magazine called Making Hunger History. And Mm. she set out to build what she calls the Match.com for sandwiches, you know, Mm. rounding up all the unused food from events and restaurants and stuff and matching it with places that need food. And I know there are, are a lot of folks who do this, but she seems to have figured out a pretty good system for doing it. So she's got a platform called Copia. That connects all the cafeterias and hospitals, universities and hotels and businesses that have a lot of food that they have left over with nonprofits that need it. Um, So they've got like a whole algorithm that that matches them together. And it's for profit uh, to keep it running. But still, I imagine like that's something that makes companies feel good uh, to be able to reuse the food that they have. So they they dispatch a driver automatically to go pick up and deliver the food. And then oh, the neat. nonprofit signs a receipt, so they get it, I'm sure, a tax credit back to the organization. But um, so far, they've recovered more than a million pounds of food. Um, and That's awesome. They started in San Francisco, um, but they've expanded to other parts of California, um, Dallas, Denver, and North Carolina, which I was excited to see. And yeah. and, and thinking about disaster relief specifically, I read at the end that they um, were one of the first to mobilize in the North Bay during the wildfires in California. And they were able to get tens of thousands of um, tens of thousands of people who are there servicing like firefighters and National Guard and stuff oh, food wow. while they were out there. So an example of someone who you know had the system in place and then was mm-hmm. able to apply it during natural disaster. Like we want to lift up folks who are tackling these really difficult challenges, but are, are figuring out a way to make it work because we know how much food is wasted. And she calls hunger like, yeah. the dumbest, the world's dumbest problem. Because yeah. there's enough food. It's just getting it to people who need it. Oh, uh, that is the truth. Yeah, and I'll link to it because um, the article is online. You can read it for free. Yeah. You know, uh, building on what you just said about uh, someone who was able to take an existing system and then apply it in places where it's needed. So that brings me to uh, this week's Kindred of the Moment. So if I, I feel like most people probably know that Hurricane Michael just hit the Florida panhandle. 
Um, the devastation in some of the small towns there, especially, um, but the, the Panama City, Mexico Beach, mm-hmm. it looks a lot like what we experienced here in Katrina. Um, yeah. And the town where my husband and I uh, actually got married on the beach has been leveled. Oh and, my gosh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, we got married um, outside of Port St. Joe at the state park um, on the Cape San Blas Peninsula. And the road to the peninsula is just destroyed and we saw some aerial footage um of of some of the homes and things and i think i don't i haven't seen pictures of all of it but it's going to be rough for the people that live there and thankfully it was mostly vacation homes it's it's mostly like a vacation rental area um so i don't think it was a lot of people's primary residences but there's a lot of damage and so i was looking for um some Hurricane Michael relief. Um, and I came across this really interesting organization out of Austin, Texas. They're called the Circle of Health International. Have you ever heard of them? Mm-mm. They, um, this is from their website. They are an international humanitarian organization providing reproductive, maternal, and newborn health care in crisis settings around the world. And what really struck me about them is that um, their value is to really strengthen the systems and the networks and the people that are already in place in areas instead of coming in from the outside with with Mm -hmm. their ideas of how to fix problems they just direct resources and money and training and support to people who are already working in those areas local folks and so they say this on their website big box relief organizations tend to export americanized solutions to communities in need COHI takes the opposite approach, aligning with local women-led organizations who are best suited to know and advise on the needs of the women and children that they serve. So they have projects all over the world, um, but they have um, they also have disaster response projects in the United States. And so there's a there's a um, effort that they're raising money for specifically for Hurricane Michael Relief. They are working to raise $50,000. I thought this was really great to hire a team of evacuee women to coordinate relief efforts within the shelters, provide cash grants to evacuees to cover emergency housing and transportation costs for vulnerable women and children who've lost their homes and vehicles in the storm, provide cash grants to evacuees to cover costs associated with labor and delivery support and medical care for medically fragile kids. And they also are emphasizing support for LGBT TQI folks. And so, yeah. So, um, this is a, if, uh, you want to donate, you can visit their website. It's C O H I N T L.org and it's circle of health international. And if you just go to their, um, homepage, there's instructions on how to donate to all of their programs, but also their hurricane Michael, um, relief assistance. And so I just wanted to lift up an organization that shares our values. Um, and just as an example of a way that we can make sure that the money that we give is being used in a way that isn't, you know, that's not harming the people that we're trying to help. Right. Um, Yeah. It's good to remember the folks who are really doing the work mm-hmm. that is needed and mm-hmm. however we can support them. So we'll link to their website in the show notes if you'd like to donate to this cause or other relief effort that they're doing. Yeah. Um, and if you're local to Austin, Texas, um, you can look them up and see if they've got anything local going on that you can volunteer for or build some relationships. They do advocacy work at the Capitol um, in favor of maternal health and reproductive rights. So there's awesome. definitely, yeah, there's some ways to get involved if you live in Texas as well. Yeah. And let us know if you get connected with them. We'd love to hear about your experience. Yes, please do. So that's it for Kindreds of the Moment. Oh, thanks for that. Um, And so we're going to talk about next time. 
We have been meaning to do this for a while, but we're finally going to talk about gender identity and expression in a world built around binaries. I can't wait. uh, Yeah, it's going to be really good. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 